The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. John chapter 8, if I didn't say that earlier. I wanted to start by saying this. During COVID, one of the many adjustments that we all had to make is we had to learn how to do Zoom meetings. You remember what that was like? I mean, it was helpful in the sense that we could be in separate locations and maintain social distance while still maintaining a good workflow, and and so that was great. But there were lots of, you know, kinks along the way, and it provided a lot of comedic relief for many of us as moments that people unintended accidentally got captured on camera. Maybe you'll remember some of these. There was a viral story about a woman whose boss accidentally turned herself into a potato on their Microsoft Teams meeting and couldn't figure out how to turn off the setting. (laughs) And so she was stuck being a potato for the whole meeting. You guys remember that one? And then there was also a story about a news reporter who was on Good Morning America, and he, he was told that the shot was only going to be from his waist up, and so he had a suit on the top, but didn't bother to put pants on the bottom, and, and so it resulted in this unfortunate incident. And, and there were so many other stories. There was another woman who accidentally, you know, forgot to turn off her camera and carried her computer with her into the bathroom. We're not going to show a picture of that, but can you imagine what it would be like to have your most embarrassing moments broadcast for everyone to see? Or worse yet, what would it be like to have your most regrettable mistakes publicly exposed? At a venue like this, imagine being pulled up onto the stage, and and we've got this contraption, and we're going to put it on like a hat, and it's going to broadcast on the screen behind me your worst, most regrettable mistake of your life. Oh, my gosh. That's essentially, for all practical purposes, what happened to the woman at the center of our story today. She was humiliated in a public way, in an embarrassing way. She was exposed at church, I might add. But what happened next changed the rest of her life. Let's go ahead and begin reading our text. Um, And it starts with, uh, well, wait a minute. Oh, it says in verse 53 of John 7, then they all went home. But verse 1 of chapter 8 says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives I just think that's an interesting place for us to begin this study. I mean, notice the juxtaposition between these two scenes. Everybody goes home, but Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, the implication being that he had no home to go to. Think about that. The king of the universe had no home, no place to lay his head. On one occasion, Jesus said to a would-be follower, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so he was forced to sleep out under the stars, but he spent that night in communion with his heavenly Father in preparation for what the next day would bring. And so at dawn, it says in verse 2, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught 
in adultery. And they made, him, made her stand before the group. So these verses give us or provide us with the setting for our story, which takes place there in the temple courts. You have a large crowd of people gathering around Jesus. This would have taken place in the court of the women. They're in the temple grounds, and there were many journeyers and, and many pilgrims who were still remaining from the Feast of Tabernacles, which had just passed, and so they all gathered around Jesus to hear him teach. And at some point, while he's teaching, his teaching gets interrupted, and there's a commotion, and then the people part like the Red Sea, and these religious leaders take this woman, perhaps dragging her against her will, no doubt, maybe by the hair even, and they cast her down at Jesus' feet. Now, who were these men? Well, the text identifies them for us as scribes and Pharisees. They were religious men. They were the religious authorities of the day. They were the ones the people looked to and relied upon to provide them with the heart and the will of our Heavenly Father. However, while these guys maintained an outward appearance of Holiness or morality on the inside, they were in fact arrogant and proud, self-righteous, and even deeply hypocritical. In other words, their holiness was a show. It was a sham. They were just playing a part. And sadly, there are many who do this very thing. And sometimes it's the people who appear to be the holiest on the outside who are the ones on the inside who are hiding the most, and that was the case here. So they take this woman, they cast her down at Jesus' feet, and they tell him, we've just caught her in the very act of adultery. And so I have a couple of questions about that. How did they do that? How did they catch her in the act? I mean, we're not told, but something fishy seems to have been going on. You see, the rabbinic tradition of the day stated that since adultery was a capital offense, any accusation had to be backed up by an eyewitness testimony. It wasn't enough for someone to say, yeah, I saw these two people walk into the hotel and they walked out the following morning. No, no, you had to see it happen. So how did these men happen to catch her in the act? We don't know. Another question, obvious, that comes to mind is, well, here's the woman, but where's the guy, right? I mean, if she's caught in the act, then the guy certainly had to be there too. It takes two to tango, as they say. But the fact is, he's nowhere to be seen. And that leads me to believe that perhaps this was some kind of elaborate setup. And we're going to get into more of that in a moment. But perhaps they even paid some guy to seduce this woman, and they let him off scot-free so that they could trap Jesus. Now our attention turns to the woman in the story. We know almost nothing about her. We don't know her name. We don't know where she's from. We don't know anything about her family history or what she did for a living. All we know is that she was married because she was committing adultery. And then I guess the other thing we could say about her is that she was in the middle of having the worst day of her life. I mean, imagine the... The humiliation, the shock, being pulled out of the bed, dragged through the streets, and then thrust down at Jesus' feet. Imagine her embarrassment. Perhaps she didn't even have time to, to grab a robe or to grab clothing. She endured the gasps of the crowd and the shameful stares of onlookers. 
I picture her standing there with slumped shoulders and downcast gaze and tears streaming down her cheeks as she awaited the inevitable judgment and the pelting of rocks that she knew was coming her way. It says in verse 4 that they said to Jesus, Teacher, again, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such women. But what do you say? They almost knew instinctively that Jesus would have a different response. And they were using this question, John tells us, as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And I want you to notice with me how they couch their rhetoric in in pious words. Hey, we're here as the bastions of morality. We're just trying to uphold the laws of Moses. At least that's what it looked like on the outside. But John reveals the true motives behind their actions when he tells us they really did this in order that they might trap Jesus. They had no real interest in actual justice. If they had, they would have taken her in private before a judge, and they certainly would have brought the man. After all, the book of Leviticus declares that the man and the woman guilty of committing adultery both had to be executed. But again, they conveniently let the guy go. And so what they're doing is they're trying to trap Jesus. They thought they had him between a rock and a hard place, on the horns of a dilemma, if you will. On the one hand, if Jesus should say, okay, put her to death, then he would risk a couple things. Number one, he would risk losing his um, reputation of being the friend of sinners, But in addition to that, it would put him in a bind with the Roman government because they had removed the right of executing prisoners from the Jewish people. And so if they happened to come in, they could point to Jesus and say, hey, he's the one who told us to to stone this woman. And Jesus would be in all kinds of trouble with Rome prematurely. On the other hand, if he said that she shouldn't be put to death, he would put himself with at odds with with the laws of God and the words of Moses. Either way, he was in trouble, or at least that's what they thought. But look at the second half of verse 6. So they set the trap, the bait, the snare, it's all there. And then verse 6, the second half tells us that Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I love, absolutely love, Jesus' response. He ignores the accusers, and then he stoops down, and he writes with his finger in the dust. Now, by the way, this is the only time in all of Scripture where we ever read about Jesus writing anything. 
I mean, he had a lot of great things worth writing down, and certainly there were others who wrote down things that Jesus said, but this is the only instance in Scripture where we're told Jesus himself wrote something. And I find it significant that he didn't write it on parchment, he didn't write it with ink, he didn't write it on vellum or, or, or what was available at the time, but instead he writes on the ground with his finger in the dust so that it just would disappear soon. Now, everybody wants to know, what was he writing? <laughs> And the shorter answer is, we don't know. Oh, we're going to have to wait till we get to heaven to find out. Some say he wrote a scripture from the Old Testament, and that's certainly possible. There's this really interesting scripture passage in Jeremiah 17, uh, verse 13. I'd love it if we could read this out loud. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Did Jesus write Jeremiah 17, 13? I don't know, but it's kind of cool. It talks about those individuals who turn away from the Lord being written in the dust. There have been other Bible scholars who have suggested that the text almost seems to indicate that Jesus was writing a word against her accusers. Perhaps he even wrote the names of the men standing there as he scans the crowd. I mean, he knew what was in their heart. He knew their past, their present, their future. He knew all the skeletons in their closet and certainly could have looked at them, lined up his eyes with them, and then wrote their name Moshi, adultery, 97, Jacob, spring break, 2004, and he could go down the list and he could lock eyes with them and the fire of his eyes just penetrating their very souls. And this certainly would explain why they all cleared the area so quickly. By the way, the only other time in scripture where we see the finger of God writing, you know where it is? It's in the Old Testament on top of Mount Sinai where God takes his finger and on the, the stone tablets writes down the Ten Commandments that he gives to Moses. So maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments. Again, the truth is we don't exactly know what Jesus wrote. But here's what we do know. As Jesus bent down and wrote in the sand, what happened to everyone's attention? Their eyes were taken off the woman and redirected onto Jesus. I love that. And maybe that was the point of the whole thing. He wanted to get people's attention off of her and onto him. And then he stands in the middle of writing and he says something. He says, let the one without sin cast the first stone. Now, the religious, the religious leaders had presented Jesus with what they felt was an open and shut case. And, and I can picture them standing there with rocks in hand, ready to act as judge and jury and ready to carry out the sentence. But Jesus' words stop them right in their tracks, and he springs the trap right on them, and the tables are turned. You remember that old saying about those who live in glass houses and how they shouldn't throw stones. And, and that's really what Jesus is communicating with these guys in this moment. He wanted them to see that she wasn't the only one who stood guilty before him on that day. They were, in fact, just as guilty as her. You see, here's the deal. The religious leaders were both right 
and wrong on this particular day. They were right about her guilt. She was guilty. They'd caught her in the act. It was undeniable. But they were wrong in seeing themselves as innocent. You see, the only difference between her and them is she knew she was a sinner. There was no denying it. And her sins may have been more overt. They may have been more obvious. And theirs might have been more subtle. But listen, that didn't make them any less loathsome with God. They just happened to be better at hiding their sins, which, when you think about it through that lens, makes their sin worse than hers. You know, sometimes people will ask, are certain sins greater or worse than other sins? And the answer is yes. There are some sins that are worse than others. And we know that's true because Jesus looked at Pilate who was standing in judgment over him, and he said, ah, the one who delivered me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. So he creates divisions and degrees of sins. But what constitutes a greater sin? Now that, that might surprise you. Because you see, in in Proverbs chapter 6, God furnishes us with a list of the things that he hates the most. And I'd love to read this list with you. Let's go ahead and read this out loud. This is Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, Feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So this is Proverbs 6. God says, these are the things I hate more than anything else. Now, interestingly, after this list in Proverbs 6, God goes on to to talk about, through Solomon, as he warns his son, he says, now avoid the adulterous woman. And so it's another sin for, to be sure and something that God also hates. But it's noteworthy that at the top of the list of things that God hates, we find these words, a proud or a haughty look. We might expect God to start with murder or adultery, something outward. But no, number one on his list is pride. Now, these religious leaders were guilty of that very thing. They were proud and arrogant and self-righteous. They thought they had no sins to repent of. And because of that, their hearts were just as hard as the stones that they carried in their hands. They were pretending to be holier than they, in fact, were. And they had murderous intents in their hearts. So they were hypocrites. And as we take stock of our own lives, I think this is a good place for us to say, Lord, am I in any way like those religious leaders? Do I look down my nose on people that I see as being less than me, not as holy as me? And I think as a whole, the church today needs to to wrestle and grapple with the fact that the prevailing views of most people today is that we, that meaning the church, are full of judgmental and self-righteous people. You know, Jesus said, the world, it's going to know you by your love. It's our love for one another that ought to mark us that ought to distinguish us, our love for the lost, that ought to set us apart and identify us as followers of Jesus. But I'm afraid we've become more known for our holier-than-thou attitudes. 
I'm reminded of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyes and pay no attention to the plank of wood coming out of your own? Can you imagine someone walking up to you with a two-by-four in your, their eye coming out of their head and being like, oh, I think you got a little speck of dust in your eye, you know? And when he said that, I imagine the people chuckling just like we do. It was comical. And yet, how often do we do that very thing? Casting judgment, pronouncing condemnation on the world around us. Now, some of you might protest and say, but wait a minute, pastor. What about right and wrong? What about justice? I mean, we can't just turn a blind eye to sin. And to that, I would say, you're absolutely right. But listen, it's our attitude and our motivation that needs to come across in the right way when we confront people in their sin. And it makes all the difference in the world. Listen, our, our goal, the motivating force in our lives as we confront those caught or trapped in sin must always be love and a, a goal towards restoration. And that certainly wasn't the case here. You know, Paul addressed this very thing in his letter to the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 6. I want you to read with me what Paul wrote to those believers. He said this, and let's read it out loud. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So he's noticed he says they get caught in a sin. And isn't that the way it is so often? It's just, it's like a trap that's spring-loaded. It just catches you. And you get caught in that sin. And Paul says, yes, confront them, but restore them gently. Now, the word there for restore, it's an interesting word. And it's a word that literally describes the resetting of a broken bone. So with the care and gentleness of a physician who is resetting the broken bone of, of an injured individual, that's the, the mindset and the heart and the compassion that we're to carry as we go to those who are caught in sin. And so we see that we're all on equal footing. We're all in desperate need of God's grace. Now, some of us, we're just better at hiding our sin than others. Certainly, that was the case with these religious guys. But every person present that day was a sinner, with one notable exception, Jesus. Jesus was the only person there who, in fact, was holier than thou. He was holier than everyone there. And he was the only one who had the right to carry out the penalty of her sin because he was the only one without sin. But notably, rather than carry out judgment. Jesus showed her grace. Let's finish up our story in verse 10 and 11. It says, Jesus straightened up after they'd all left, and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she looked around, and she said, no one, Lord, or no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's talk about this pardon. It's ironic, again, that Jesus was the only one qualified to stone her that day, but he chose not to. Now, when he asks her, where are your accusers? She looks up for what I believe to be the very first time since this whole ordeal, this whole nightmare had begun to unfold. And she looks around, and 
She sees that the crowd has dispersed and all of her accusers are gone. And and then she locks eyes with Jesus. And when she looks into his eyes, she doesn't see judgment or wrath or anger or malice or condemnation. But what she sees and what she senses and what she feels from him is wave after wave of love. And so when he says, where are your accusers? She's like, I don't have any. They're gone, sir. By the way, when she uses the word sir... It it can also be translated Lord, and I find that to be a more applicable application. And I truly believe that in this moment, she became a believer. With one word, she takes her first step away from a life of sin, and she takes her first step towards the Lord. Praise the Lord. Her life was forever changed. The worst day of her life becomes the best day of her life as she meets her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says the sweetest words to her when he says, neither do I condemn you. The holiest man of all found no reason to condemn her. And I think for the rest of her life, she held on to those words. She memorized his facial expression. She memorized the inflection in his voice, and she treasured those words to her dying day. She was a woman full of guilt, but her guilt was gone. Her past was forgiven. Her sins were forgotten, and she was set free. And by the way, that's what grace does to every person in every heart that it touches. Listen to this verse. This is Paul the Apostle writing to every believer. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and he says this. And let's read it together out loud. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. There is therefore now, everybody say now, right now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's you if you've put your faith in. In him. Now, Jesus is going to go on to say, and we'll finish this with this, he's going to go on to say, go and sin no more, which lets us know that he's not just letting her off scot-free. He's not ignoring her sin. He's not dispensing what we might describe as sloppy agape or greasy grace. He told her to sin no more. Now, he didn't condemn her, but he didn't condone what she was doing either. He addressed what she had done head on, and he called it what it is. But notice the order of his words, because I find it to be so significant and so important. Jesus didn't say, sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. No, 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 he reversed it. And we might say, Jesus, you got that backwards. But if he did, what if he didn't? He meant what he said, and he said what he meant. He said, I'm not condemning you. Now go and sin no more. You see, religious people like to say, if you'll clean up your act, if you'll put your life together, then you can come and join us and we'll accept you. But Jesus says, I'll forgive you, and then I'll give you the power to clean up your act. Religion says, change or I'll condemn you. Grace says, I've forgiven you. Now let the same grace that forgave you empower you to change your life. 
You see, we don't change to be accepted. We're accepted by God's grace, and therefore we go forward in that power, and grace does for us what we could never do on our own. Listen to me about the grace of God. Grace unleashes the power of God in your life to help you overcome addictions, to help you conquer bad habits, to help you live the victorious Christian life, to help you walk in peace, to help you experience the overflowing power of God in your life. Grace isn't there just to deal with your past, but it reaches into your future and gives you the strength you need to live for God today. Amen. And what that means is the person who's truly experienced and encountered the grace of God, they're not going to go on living in their sin anymore. They can't. Why? Because grace gets inside of you, and it changes you from the inside out so that you're a new creation in Christ. And I think the story that we've looked at this evening beautifully illustrates the power of God's grace, the glory of his goodness, the the measure of his love, how her past was forgiven, her sins were forgotten, and she was set free. You see, in looking at the story of this woman, we're really reading the story of us, aren't we? We've all sinned, the Bible says. We've all gone astray. And the wages for that sin, the the penalty for our sin, if you will, according to the Bible, is death. The soul that sins shall surely die. Now, even if your sins aren't out in the open like this woman's, you might be more like the religious leaders and you look squeaky clean on the outside. But let's just remember something. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight and everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In other words, we're all exposed before God. And I don't need to put your thoughts on the screen because what is secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. So he knows everything about you, which can be a discomforting thought. He sees the good. He sees the bad. He sees the ugly. He sees me inside and out. And here's the worst part. We're unable to change our condition, unable to help ourselves unless someone steps in and takes our place. And that's where the gospel message becomes so powerful. You see, we stood condemned But Jesus said, I'm going to take their place. And he allowed himself to be condemned in our place. He bore the curse for us so that we might be blessed. He satisfied the righteous requirements of the law for us so that we might be welcomed in as sons and as daughters. He was stripped so that you might be robed. He endured the shame of the cross so that you might be clothed in righteousness, welcomed as a son or a daughter. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to be burdened by guilt. You can live under the sentence of Jesus as he pronounces it over you tonight and says, not guilty. Why? Because he paid the price and he went to the cross in your place. And he says, neither do I condemn you, for there is therefore now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So for those of you living under the cloud of shame and you feel like this overwhelming burden that you just carry with you throughout your day and and you just can't escape it and, and your sin is ever before your eyes, Jesus wants to set you free this evening, right? 
right now in this moment. I declare it. And you can embrace that. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for this incredible word that we've looked at this evening. Your word is rich, principally because it's a living word. It's unlike any other book. It's living and active. It pierces. It speaks. It's active. So, Lord, would you pierce our hearts? Would you penetrate to the core of our souls? And for those of us who've been living under the burden of guilt and shame, Lord, might we, for the first time for some of us, experience the overwhelming power of your grace. Listen, oh, let me invite you to do something. Shame makes you bury your head in your hands. Shame makes you turn and run from Jesus. Shame makes you hide from God. It's so interesting. In Genesis, when God describes creating Adam and Eve, he says this about them. He says they were naked and they knew no shame. Of all the things God could have said about humanity, what he zeroed in on, what he focused on was the fact that they knew no shame. You weren't created to live under the burden of shame. And you say, how do I get rid of it? Because it's a constant companion. The answer is you come to the cross. And there is forgiveness that flows, the crimson flow that washes us whiter than snow. And you say, thank you, Jesus, for bearing my sin, for taking my place, for hanging upon my cross. It's my sin that you paid for, bled and died for. And then you rose victorious from the grave, and now I put my faith in you. And you can walk in his forgiveness. You can be forgiven and free, having your past forgotten, just like the woman in our story. If that's the desire of your heart, let me just lead you in a prayer. You can say this prayer out loud. Mean it from the bottom of your heart, and Jesus will come into your life. He will remove your heart of stone, and he will replace it with a fleshly heart upon which he can inscribe his will. He will renew you from the inside out. You'll never be the same. Just say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me when I was unlovable. Thank you for wanting me and making me yours. Thank you for your cross. I received the gift of salvation by grace, through faith, in Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.